Very good. If you would, take your Bibles with me and open to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9. Just preparing this message and trying to think about Jeremy's Sunday school class on Mark and how all of these things kind of fit together. And there was, there was themes and to help you kind of remember what was going on. And I, could, I couldn't remember those things. So Jeremy to set me straight a little bit. As we go, Mark chapter 9, I'm going to pick up in verse 33. If you would, let's stand together as we honor the reading of Scripture together. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he took a child and put them in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled with two hands than to go to, or enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell, where their worms do not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding. Pray that you would guide us through it. 
Lord, as we think about this, this last command to be at peace with one another, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to understand and, and comprehend what that means. I pray that, that as we go through this, that it would be made clear that your spirit would just take and illuminate this text. Give us understanding and clarity. Lord, we ask that, that you move our hearts. We pray that if there are ways in which we have been disobedient, there are ways in which we have fallen short. I pray that you bring those to our attention, bring those to our mind, and, and give us the, the desire and, and the will, Lord, to make those things right, to, put a, to cut off sin in our life, to, to deal with those things. Lord, we pray that you would give us the, the power, the ability to do that. Lord, we pray that, that as we go through this text, it is the name of Jesus that would be magnified. As we approach the, the Lord's table after this, and this is all leading up to that, Lord, we pray that you would just make what Jesus Christ has done so much more clear and that we would praise the name of Jesus exalt him in our lives for what he has done. And we would pray and we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. On the last Sundays of the month, we've been taking up some time and going through the the one another passages in the scriptures. I said we've been going through some of them because there's actually a, a lot of them. We're picking a, a representative sample. We've talked about passages that have to do with loving one another and how we, and now we turn our attention a little bit to texts that have to do with, with unity. There are quite a few of them. In fact, one third of all the, the one another texts we put in a, a unity category. And as we noted about the love one another passages, a number of those passages simply say love one another. And the reason in the text wasn't always the same, but there's certainly something to be said about that repetition, isn't it? Perhaps it is that Christians are to love one another. When a third of those passages has to do with unity in one way or another, we recognize pretty quickly that unity is a pretty important theme in the scriptures. Unity is, is very important in the life of the church. We've been seeing this in Romans 12, as Paul speaks of unity there as one body. We are one body that exists as different members, and there's diversity within those. And that diversity only makes sense in light of the unity that we have with one another. And one of the things that is so sad, I think, in the church today, that there are many people that are worried about their spiritual gift. They're worried about using that, but have no sense or little sense of what it is that unites Christians in the first place. And because of that, they have no real meaningful understanding of how to exercise the gifts they have properly in the context of church unity. 
Church unity, then, is an extremely important theme throughout Scripture. Of course, unity extends beyond spiritual gifts. It extends to the world around us. If we think of Romans chapter 12, verse 18 for a moment, we read there that we are to, to do our best to live at peace with everyone. In our text that we read this morning in Mark chapter 9, it's a little bit difficult to know how to take verse 50, that is where we find the, the one another here. It simply says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how then will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The question that arises here is, who is the one another? Certainly, and we'll talk about this in a moment, that the context here is, is persecution. It's, it's hardship. We're being told to be at, are we being told to be at peace with those who persecute us? That would be nice, wouldn't it? I don't think that's the case. The fact is that doesn't happen. It's clear from the scriptures that we're not to live in a way that provokes opposition and persecution for persecution's sake. In other words, Christians aren't to intentionally be provocative and elicit a persecution response from others. But Christians are not to be afraid of persecution either. Jesus warned his followers clearly in John 15 that the reason the world hated them is because they hated Jesus first. In other words, the disciples or followers of Jesus will be persecuted because of the one they follow. I mean, this is the thing. There's, there's a choice. Who are you going to follow? A route that brings ease and comfort? Or are you going to follow Jesus? Because if you follow Jesus, that route brings hardship. In Mark 9.50 here, I think the best way to understand this, and I want you to see it right from the onset here, and that is that those who are salted, those who are salt and take on the, the values of a disciple of Jesus will not argue about who is the greatest, but instead they will live at peace with one another. You can kind of see why we read such a large portion of Mark 9 when we're focusing our attention on verse 15. Because to understand what is going on here, we need to go back to the start of this particular narrative that begins generally in verse 33 when they arrive at Capernaum. As the disciples and Jesus are, are heading to Capernaum, we realize what has been taking place in the events that are leading up to this trip. The disciples witnessed the transfiguration. And starting in, in verse 14, we read of, of Jesus healing a demon-possessed boy that the disciples could not heal, which comes into play later. And after that amazing experience, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. Jesus was pretty clear about what was going to happen to them, about what was going to happen to him, but they didn't, they didn't understand it, and they were afraid to ask him about it, so they didn't ask him about it. So instead of asking Jesus about his teaching, about his death and his resurrection, 
trying to understand the, the teaching of the teacher that they were committed to following. Instead, they decided to argue amongst themselves about who was the greatest. It wasn't really time for heated debate, for sure, but that's what they're doing. Notice the, the irony here. They've left everything and committed themselves to following this Jesus. Literally, they left everything. And now Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. And they, they're like, what? We don't get this. So they just stay silent. We're quick to, quick to criticize the disciples here. I mean, how can you get so caught up on pointless drivel when you should have been learning from the teacher that was right in front of you? But I'm sure that we do the same thing. Look at how many things that we get caught up instead of learning from the greatest teacher that ever lived. Think about all the, time, all the things that, that occupy our time instead of learning about the one that came so that we might have eternal life. For instance, a lot of Christians know far more about sports and current events than they do about basic Christian theology. I would guess that a lot of Christians don't own a basic one-volume systematic theology. Not that you have to. There's other ways to get the same information, but don't miss my point. How many times do we have a, a question about something? Like we get in a conversation with somebody who in, insists that the best Bible translation is the King James Version. The rest versions are, are flawed. And the guy seems pretty studied up. He's not convinced, he's not convinced you yet. But after you have the conversation, you just you think, boy, would have been nice to have an answer to that. But then we don't think about it. We know that we need to learn here. We know that we need to have an answer to the question, why there's so many translations? Which is the best translation? Why is it the best? We could pick up a book on the subject, and we could have a good answer next time we get into that question. We could be studying the Trinity, and it says, man, I need to get, I need to get ground in this area. We could pick up a book on that or some other important area that has come up and how we need to be more equipped When's the last time we felt inadequate when it came to presenting the gospel? What did we do about it? I mean, we could have bought a book about the gospel. We could have borrowed one from me or, or somebody else on how to share the gospel. We could have watched a, a video. We could have done a host of things. To get my point, we criticized the disciples here for not understanding Jesus' teaching on his death and resurrection, for not even asking him to explain about it, for remaining silent. Something very important, but we often do the same thing. We often become so satisfied with being ignorant. And we just get so caught up in our own ignorance that our life becomes about pointless drivel, like arguing over who is the greatest. I find it interesting that Jesus waits until they're in this house in Capernaum and then asks them, what, are you, what were you discussing along the way? Or as one commentator put it, what was all that brouhaha about on the way? Just the, the question that Jesus asked provoked silence 
They didn't know what to say. Probably because of their embarrassment, they were ashamed when Jesus asked them about it. We're told they they kept quiet at Jesus' question because they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus then started teaching. And the first thing out of his mouth is this. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Don't miss the radical nature of that statement. It was extremely countercultural. The natural human instinct is to dominate, but Jesus is saying that those who live out his words would not seek preeminence, but they would seek to serve others instead. In other words, you can't do both. You can't be a servant of all and seek your own preeminence. Did the disciples get this teaching? Initially, no. The night before Jesus died, we find them again in the upper room arguing about who was the greatest. So what did Jesus do? He washed their feet. Whoever is to be the greatest is what? The servant of all. I would guess during that moment, they remembered this conversation. The fact is, we are called to this kind of radical, countercultural living, and there's no exceptions to that. Now, as Jesus talked about this, they were most likely in Peter's house. That's the house that they were in. And there's a, there's a child in that house. It could have been Peter's child. We know that he was married, according to 1 Corinthians 9, 5. So it's possible that Peter had a child so that Jesus just grabbed one of Peter's child, children that were running around. Nevertheless, Jesus put a child among them and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me only, but him who sent me. Now, it's important to recognize about this statement that Jesus was not speaking in English, but he was speaking in Aramaic. And in Aramaic, the word for child and servant are the same words. So Jesus is is making, this isn't disconnected from the previous statement, the servant of all things. He's drawing the disciples' attention to that. So there's kind of a play on words that is going on here. Jesus is making a point. He's saying that the disciples, the followers of Jesus, must receive his children, who in this case are other servants, and receive them with open arms and with the same love that one has for a little child. Who is better than whom? Those were the wrong questions. And certainly not things to argue about. They weren't things to occupy time with. We're to be servants of others. And Jesus said that when we have this love for other servants of Jesus, we welcome not only Jesus, but the Father who sent him. This narrative should give us a little pause when we start to think about how we treat and think of other Christians, doesn't it? James taught much the same thing as Jesus says here in James 2, 1 through 4. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a, a gold 
ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. If you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, will you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet? Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? So if we're to be Christians who are truly spirit-filled, and by that I mean that we let the Spirit of God shape our behavior, then we realize that we have a divine mandate to love other people, especially those who are fellow servants, those who are believers. John then, obviously thinking of Jesus' words here, both confesses and asks a question. Because he saw Jesus' words being acted out, so to speak. John said, teacher, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. I think it is interesting the disciples tried to stop him, but he would not stop. Notice they were not trying to stop him because he was mocking the name of Christ. This guy wasn't doing that like some charlatans do today and in the days of Jesus. But he was casting out demons in Jesus' name, it says. It was obvious to the disciples that this person was casting out demons and magnifying the name of Jesus, not himself. That's clear from the disciples' statement. They didn't try and stop him because of his bad theology. They were trying to stop him because he wasn't with them. He wasn't part of them. He wasn't part of their group. You see what I mean when I say that John was half confessing here? After Jesus had just said that to accept other servants of Jesus is to accept the Father, he recognized in his mind that this guy, this guy they tried to stop before, was probably a fellow servant. They probably should not have so quickly dismissed him. Of course, we do this frequently, don't we? We dismiss people quickly because they do things differently than we do. But because somebody does things differently, or they're not part of our church, or they're not part of our denomination, doesn't mean that we're in competition with them. One wise pastor said that we're all branch offices in the same business. When one branch prospers, we all prosper. This was John the Baptist's attitude. John the Baptist was, was gaining in popularity. He had many followers. And Jesus comes on the scene. One of John the Baptist's disciples comes to him and says this, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing everyone, and they're all going to him. Listen to how he answered this disciple. A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourself can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. One can say that the, the, the attitude in Christian ministry is key. 
This was the problem with the disciples here. Their attitude was marked by jealousness. They were ambitious. And the fact is, there's no place in the church for those who are seeking their own dominance. Those who long to be first place. Ours is the group. And if if you're not with us, then you need to stop. The fact is, we hear stories about domineering pastors in large churches recently all the time that have lost their position and it's primarily because their attitude and they didn't heed Jesus's command to serve. They didn't imagine Jesus saying to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. We must imagine Jesus saying those words to us. Is our attitude of others grudging, suspicious? Are we open to to others just as we're open to children, other servants? I would suggest that our attitudes get too exclusive and narrow at times. And it's that, and it's it's when when radical servanthood in our life gets lost when we become too narrow focused and things start pointing toward ourselves. In verse 42, Jesus still has the the servant child there for the illustration. And he says that if, if one causes a little one to stumble, it would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and they throw it into the sea. The fact is when Jesus' followers long to serve others and approach others in humility, then there are going to be people that come along and take advantage of that. In the case that John mentioned about the guy casting out demons in Jesus' name, this guy was giving glory to Jesus. But there were others who were taking advantage of people, just as there is in our day. If you have time, take the time to, to listen to, to Costi Hinn's testimony of his time in his uncle Benny Hinn's ministry. It's extremely eye-opening. Just because people claim to, to heal and do all of these things doesn't mean they're on the up and up. There are charlatans that are preying on people. And here Jesus uses an incredibly graphic image to speak of the fate of such individuals. It's an incredible warning to them. It's an incredible warning to us. We need to be really careful about accusing somebody of false teaching. How serious it is. It would be better if a millstone were tied around their neck and they they tossed into a sea. When somebody's a, a false teacher, we had better know what rises to the level of false teaching. We need to know the difference. Not just in method or whatever, But is somebody truly taking advantage of others, causing them to stumble? We better know the truth and we better know what we're talking about in our day. I mean, there's a a host of so-called discernment ministries out there that are just as dangerous as some of the false teachers that they rail against. I mean, I could spend a lot of time here, but the point is, yes, in our day, false teaching should be exposed. But to know the false teaching, we need to understand true teaching, the truth. And we need to understand that in our overzealous exposure of false teaching, we can actually fall into the trap of leading other people astray. 
So Christians are to, to walk the walk. They're to talk the talk. We're servants of an almighty king. We serve together. We recognize other servants. And in the midst of doing ministry or life together, we walk the walk in that we do not want or cause other servants to stumble. So there's a, a great need for personal holiness in the life of the believer. And this is where Jesus goes next. He continues in his gruesome illustration. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, then you should cut it off for it's better you to enter the kingdom of God without that member than to have all your parts and go to hell. Of course, some have read this passage and taken it literally. There was a a student of a Scottish preacher by the name of A.J. Gossip. Quite a name. But this, this preacher, this teacher said that he had a student that was incredibly brilliant. And and suddenly this brilliant student just went crazy one night and and cut off his hand with a razor. And when the professor found him, he was laughing strangely and saying, I did it, I did it, now I can look at Jesus in the face. A student of church history will remember the story of, of origin not so much for his, his doctrine, not so much for his theology, but the fact that he emasculated himself to overcome his, his, sec, his sinful desires. The fact is here, Jesus isn't calling for, for self-mutilation of ourselves or others for that matter, but for spiritual mortification. Mortification is the practice of putting to death or, or cutting off the harmful practices, the sinful behaviors in one's life. And this is not easy. It happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a, a let go and let God. Clearly the teaching here is that we are to take sin seriously and we're to put it to death. We're to cut it off from our lives. And doing that isn't easy. Just as cutting off your hand or, or plucking out your eye would not be an easy thing. Drastic steps must be taken to deal with sin in our lives. Now go down to verse 49 for everyone will be salted with fire. That's a a curious statement. And if we understand the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, it wouldn't be quite so curious. Leviticus 2 verse 13 says that one shall season all grain offerings with salt and that one should not let the salt, the covenant with God, be missing from the grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So salt speaks of offering. It speaks of of sacrifice here. So everyone that is a follower of Christ is, is to be a willing sacrifice. Following Christ is a radical thing. Dealing with sin in our lives is a radical thing. Having the world at odds with us means living radically in their midst. Romans 12.1 tells us that we are to be living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God. Salt was an image of sacrifice, but it was also used in the ancient world as a preservative. It was to keep food from rotting. So here we see Jesus using the image of salt not only to draw our attention to sacrifice, but also to the the persevering influence that it had. And as Christians here, we are to be a preserving influence in a decaying world in which we live. I'm not sure that we always look at the world that way, but we should. That the world in which we live is is decaying. It's in the process of, of wasting away and we have the cure. 
we can preserve it. Ask yourself this, in the, in the sphere of influence that I have in the workplace, in, in the places that I frequent, in our circle of friends, what influence do we have there? Is it a preserving influence, pointing others to Christ? Is it arguing over who is the greatest, how to do things properly? Does it, do I cause other people to stumble or do I point to Jesus? And in doing that, we can expect persecution in dealing with our own, we get persecution in dealing with our own sin and rebelliousness can be extremely difficult. We'll have to make sacrifices. We'll have to cut off sin, so to speak. But I think the point of this is disciples don't argue over who is the greatest. They serve. They point to Christ. And in that process, it's not going to be easy. They're going to suffer. They're going to deal with sin. But our task in all of this is to live at peace with one another. That phrase, that last phrase there is a, a reference to the attitude that the disciple is toward, to have toward one another. And it all goes back to Jesus' question along the road. Jesus gets in the house, he asks them, what were you guys discussing along the road? And here's the thing, we're all on the road, aren't we? We're all traveling through life, and the question for us is, is what are we discussing? Is it, who's the greatest? Is our discussions and our, the way we live and our behavior, is it all pointing toward us, or is it all pointing outward toward Christ? Is it pointing toward him? Are we looking to exalt our, ourselves, or are we a, a servant of others pointing to one who is even greater? John the Baptist said it wonderfully. I must be less, he must be greater. My job is not to point to myself, to get followers, to get all that. My job is to point to him. And as we think about this, as we approach the Lord's table, think about the, the road we're on. Think about our own lives and then think about what Jesus Christ has done for us. That his, his body was broken, his blood was, was spilled for us. That we might have hope. That we might have a new life. And that we might turn around and, and exemplify his sacrificial service in our lives by pointing others to the, to the wonderful power of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to ask the, the deacons to come forward, and we'll serve the, the Lord's Supper. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you that, that while we were not deserving, that you sacrificed yourself for us, that you willingly went to the cross for sinners such as is us, that, that when we don't deserve your grace, we don't deserve your, your mercy, but you extended it freely to us. Lord, and I pray that as we look back on your sacrifice, as we look back on, on what you've done for us, Lord, I pray that we would look forward to the road ahead, that we would seek to be invigorated by you, to, that we would exalt you and point others along the road to you. Lord, I pray that you make us servants, that we would think of, of others more highly than, of, than we do our, ourselves, that we would point others along the road to you by serving others and living at peace with one another.
Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.